So y'all turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. Uh, and you probably are aware of this. I'm not really a comic book guy, and you probably aren't either. Some of you may be. But even if you're not, you're probably aware of a character called the Hulk, right? Yeah, so normally a mild-mannered scientist named Bruce Banner. But when Bruce gets angry, things go a little haywire. His skin turns green. He, he loses his mind, and his muscles expand to such an extreme degree that his, all his clothes are torn off, except for his very resilient pants that we're very thankful for. And, and he becomes the Hulk. He goes around smashing things and destroying things. And, and when he's done, he goes back to Bruce Banner. And poor Bruce has to clean up the mess that the Hulk made. And there's a verse in the Bible that sort of makes me think about the Hulk. It's, for, it's James 1, 19 through 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That last sentence, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a moment of clarity that all of us need to reckon with. Because when we get angry, most of us feel justified. Even when we look back on that incident in retrospect, we usually justify it. I was, I was right to be angry because of what he did, because of what she said, because of this injustice that has occurred. And yet, how often were you really right, anger, angry for righteous reasons? Probably very rarely. And even more rarely has been the time that you were angry and you acted in a righteous way. I know I can't think of any moments where I got angry and because I was angry, I did something I'm now proud of. Our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So what do we do with that? I've given this, this sermon the title, Taming the Volcano, for a reason. Because a lot of us think that our anger is something that has to come out. If you feel angry, you've got to let it out. If you just keep it in, it's going to eat you up inside, right? That's what I used to believe, too. And, and there are some people in this room that would probably say that. They'd say, you know, don't, don't get on me on my about my anger, preacher, because I have to let it out. There are things that push my buttons, and I have to express them. There are probably other people in the room who would say, well, I don't really have a problem with anger, and the reason you say that is because you don't yell, you don't scream, you don't cuss, you don't get violent, and yet you express your anger in different ways, with a, with a cutting remark, with a manipulative action, or by withholding affection, or, or by uh, holding on to a grudge. You're one of those people that everyone knows, man, if you lose her good opinion, you lose, you get on his bad side, you're there forever. And then there are probably people here today who say, I know I have a problem with anger. I've hurt people. I wish I could change, but I don't think there's anything I can do about it. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, but do not sin. It is absolutely possible. You can't help getting angry sometimes. You can't help the emotions that exist inside of you. But what you do with those emotions, you absolutely can do something about. It is possible to be angered by this world and not act in a sinful way. And we're going to talk about it today in the life of David. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it is so honest about its heroes. There's no whitewashing in Scripture. Some of the most heroic men and women in Scripture do some of the most horrendous things. And David is one of those, the man after God's own heart. We're going to read about him today getting very angry and coming very close to doing something horrible. So we'll pick up the story with chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, verse 2. This is one of my favorite stories. You may or may not know it. You're going to love it, I think. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. 
The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So let me tell you a little something about this guy, Nabal. The name Nabal in Hebrew means fool. And in the ancient world, as you may have been taught, Names meant something. You didn't just name your child after the latest celebrity or, hey, I really like the sound of this name. If you gave a child a name, it was because it, it summed up your wishes, your hopes for that child. So, for instance, Elijah. The name Elijah means Yahweh is God. And so Elijah's father must have thought, I want all the world to know through my son that, that our Lord is the God of the whole earth. And that's exactly what Elijah turned out to be. Sometimes a child grew up and was completely different than the name he or she was given. And people would give them a new name, a name that matched their actual character. And that must be what happened to Nabal, because I cannot imagine any human father naming his child fool. He must have earned that name. Now, Understand, in Hebrew thought, the word fool doesn't mean what it means in English. In English, we call someone a fool if they're dumb, if they're not very smart. That's not what it meant in Hebrew. In Hebrew thought, fool had more of a moral component than an intellectual one. You read the book of Proverbs, and it's obvious because the fool is contrasted with the wise man who fears God. So a fool is someone who says, I don't even think there is a God. A fool is someone who says, I don't care if there's a God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care what consequences come. I'm going to do what my desires lead me to do no matter what. That's a fool. So you can imagine this man Nabal grew up as someone who did whatever he wanted. He was very rich. And so now he could absolutely do whatever he wanted. I'm sure he was proud of that name because he said, yeah, I don't care what anybody thinks. This is who I am. So this is the character we're looking at. Now here comes David, verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So there's several customs here that we're not used to. So let me give you some explanation. In that culture, hospitality was very important. If you threw a party, you didn't just invite a few people, you invited the whole village. Or if you didn't, you at least made provision for people to come by and get a little doggy bag. Because that's the way, that was, that was how you did things. In that culture, if you were shearing sheep, it was considered a time of celebration. After all, you've been keeping these sheep all year long. Now you're finally going to cash in. You're going to shear some wool. You're going to sell some of it. So it's time to be generous. David and his men, but meanwhile, by the way, David has been hiding in the wilderness. He's still hiding from Saul. He's been hiding in the wilderness outside Maon in the, in the pasture, you might say, of this man Nabal. A pasture so large a whole army could camp out in it and you wouldn't even notice. David and his men, all the time they've been camped out in this wilderness, they have been taking care of Nabal's sheep. I'm sure they thought to themselves, since we're here rent-free, we might as well do this guy a solid, take care of his sheep. David, being a shepherd himself, knew how important it was, so they kept the predators at bay. They kept thieves away. They were generous to the shepherds. And so now that it's a feast time, they, David thinks, well, 
we're hungry, we're tired. I'm sure this guy wants to reward us for what we've done. Let's give him that opportunity. So there's your background. Now here comes the action. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? And who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And in case you wonder what David thought of that reply, verse 13 tells you. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So the math here is 400 seasoned warriors armed to the teeth against one fool. That's like trying to kill a cockroach with a bazooka, right? But this is how David feels. David is ready to mulch this fool in with extreme prejudice. And he's going to enjoy doing it. However... However, although you and I would probably enjoy reading about it, that's not what happens. See, there are certain consequences to what David's about to do. Namely, number one, this man he's about to kill is a Calebite. That means he's a, a descendant of Caleb, one of the great heroes of Israel, a member of the tribe of Judah. We read about him in the book of Joshua. As a Calebite, he's a prominent member of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is David's only source of support in Israel. Out of all the tribes, they're the only ones that are loyal to him. If he kills one of their prominent members, he loses the very people who've supported him and been loyal. Number two, David so far is an innocent victim. The king of the country is trying to kill him. David's done nothing to deserve it, but if he commits cold-blooded murder, that changes. And third, there is a God involved here. And God does not sanction murder, ever. It's one of his Ten Commandments. You might say, well, David shed lots of blood. He's a soldier. Yes, but David has been protecting his country. David has been taking lives to save lives. He has been engaged in what the Bible calls or what theologians call just war. He's doing what God put him on earth to do. But killing somebody because he insulted you is completely different. Killing somebody because you're angry is something totally different. And God would punish David for that. Now, right now, David's not thinking any of these things. Right now, David's seeing nothing but red. He's on his horse, and he is riding full bore for the home of Nabal, and there's going to be some blood spilled. But someone steps in the way. Let me tell you, this is the rest of our, our, our story today, is what stops David from committing a sin he'll regret the rest of his life? Same things that can stop us. The same things that can cause us to contain the volcano that's inside of us instead of letting it erupt. Number one, a voice of reason comes to David and speaks truth into his life. Verse 14 says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Remember how we read about, remember how the scriptures describe Abigail earlier? She's beautiful and she is discerning. In other words, she is a woman of great wisdom and intelligence. You're about to see just how wise. When she hears the story of what has taken place, and what's about to take place, she forms a plan very quickly. She's a problem solver. She gathers as much food as she can carry. She puts it on donkeys. She rides out into the wilderness to intercept David. And when they meet, here's what it says in verse 23, 
When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Now we're going to read Abigail's speech to David in just a moment. It's very remarkable. But for now, just understand, David had someone who intervened. David had someone who spoke words of truth to him. And you might say, that's great for David, but when I see red, when I get angry, no one's there to intervene. No one's there to speak words of truth to me. Certainly not some beautiful woman with a truckload of food. (laughs) But I'm here to tell you, you've got someone to intervene in your life. Someone who never leaves you. Someone better than Abigail. That is the Holy Spirit of God. If you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you're a member of his family, then his Holy Spirit lives in you, speaks to you constantly, guides your decisions, speaks up when you're about to go the wrong way, shows you the way. And you might say, I don't hear a voice from God. All I hear is the words that person said that insulted me ringing in my head. All I hear is my own thoughts of what I'd like to do. And I'm here to tell you that's because you and I don't come naturally to this idea of walking by the Spirit. Ephesians, uh, Galatians 5 talks about it. You can walk by the flesh or you can walk by the Spirit. Well, we naturally walk by the flesh, right? We do what comes naturally to us, just like Nabal. I don't care what it does. I don't care what consequences come. I'm going to do what comes naturally to me. That's walking by the flesh. To walk by the Spirit, you've got to change. You ever try to do something new? You ever try to take up a new language or learn how to play an instrument? Have you ever ever tried to run a 5K and you weren't a runner before? You just got up off your couch and tried to run 3.15 miles. It didn't work out very well, right? Go home today. Go to a gym and try to bench press your own weight. If you've never lifted weights before, that's not going to end well for you. Anything like that, you have to train for. You have to work at. Living by the Spirit is something you have to train for, too. You don't just do it by sheer effort. You have to spend time in his word. You have to pray. You have to tell the Lord, Lord, I need you. If more of you, it means less of me. Take everything, just like we sang. We have to to want it and, and chase it. And God anoints our efforts as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We begin to walk by the Holy Spirit of God and make good choices. That voice of reason It speaks when we're about to do something awful. Secondly, though, something else stops David, and that is a thorough review of the consequences. So I want you to listen to this speech or read this speech along with me from Abigail. Um, By the way, Abigail, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, the perfect example, if you're a young lady and you want to grow up to be somebody, look at Abigail and look at her example here as as an example of how to intervene when you know someone's about to make a terrible mistake. Now, the language here is quite formal because she's speaking to someone she believes is going to be king someday. But if you can fight through the formality, you're going to see some incredible wisdom here. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and she said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Now you might say, wait a second, she's bad-mouthing her husband. And 99% of the time I'd say, yes, that's an awful thing to do. But when it's either that or a painful death, I mean, if my wife has to bad-mouth me to save my sorry skin, then bring it on, sister. I mean, come on. She is do- what she is doing, if you, if you look at the wisdom here, she is finding common ground with David. 
See, she could come out with guns blazing and say, how dare you charge at my husband? But no, she says, listen, believe me, of all people on earth, I know how you feel. This man makes me angry all the time. So I get it. You're right to feel angry. But then she goes further. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So you see what she's doing here? She's saying, David, think about who you are. What you're about to do, that's not who you are. What you're about to do will bring shame and disgrace upon you and upon the name of the Lord. And God has given you an exalted position. He has a great destiny for you. David, you're better than this. He's remind, she's reminding him. What you're about to do, you'll regret for the rest of your life. And she, she hammers that home in this last statement. By the way, how about that little uh, detail she throws in there, the, uh, the imagery of the sling and the stone? Do you think she knows her stuff? You think she knows who she's talking to? Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servants. So she, she hammers it home, not by saying, listen, buddy, don't do this or you'll regret it forever. She says... You're not going to do this. I believe in you. And someday you'll look back and you'll thank God you didn't do this because you won't have this stain on your conscience. You won't have the wrath of God upon you. You'll live out God's destiny for you. You see what she does here? I've told you this before. I heard it somewhere and I love it. When you disagree with someone, you can either insult them or persuade them, but you can't do both. In this situation, a lot of people would have gone to insult, would have amped it up, would have escalated the conflict. She goes for persuasion. She puts herself in David's shoes and says, think about what you're about to do. And it works. Friends, I know you don't want to think about this, but everyone in this room, if we're honest, we've done and said things when we were angry that we wish we could go back and change. And I know, I know when we talk about stories of times we got angry, we like to tell the story as if it's the other person's fault entirely. Even when we tell the story to ourselves, we're completely justified and they're totally in the wrong. And yet, if we were honest, if we were honest, we would say, I've wounded people that I love with words I can never take back, no matter how long I live or how many times I say I'm sorry. I've driven away friends. I've caused division in my workplace, in my neighborhood, my church because I just can't find it within myself to forgive that one person for what he did or what she said. I had those moments that started with a tiny, insignificant disagreement, a meaningless insult, a slight inconvenience, and I let it escalate to a point where I end up doing something I find embarrassing for the rest of my life. 
You and me, we've held grudges that poisoned our souls. We've fractured relationships. We've crushed our spouse. We've damaged our children. We've disgraced our God. All because we blow our stack because of an insult, because of a harsh word, because we don't like something that was done or said. When you think through the consequences of losing your temper, it's never worth it, is it? A thorough review of the consequences will stop you in your tracks. Number three, a humble, teachable spirit. The first two don't mean anything without this third. Verse 32 says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. He had it all planned out. Every single male was going to die. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. See, that's humility, and I'll tell you why. In that culture, it was hard to find any man who would let a woman tell him no, what to do. Now, ladies, we're completely different now. We'll listen to you dawn to dusk, right? But, but in that culture, so patriarchal, for a man, any man, to hear the words of a woman, no matter how wise, and to say, you know what, you're right and I'm wrong, much less a man like David who commanded armies, who was destined to be king, and lets this woman who he's never seen before tell him the truth, and he listens. That's humility, and that's what we need. We need the humility to stop and say, I've got a problem. We need the humility to stop and say, I need to stop speaking when I'm angry. I need to stop acting when I'm angry. I need to stop making decisions in the heat of my passion. I need to walk away. You know, there, there was a, a story of a, a group of six-year-olds and their teacher was asking them, what's something you've learned? And she was expecting them to say two plus two equals four. This one little girl said, I've learned that when your mommy and uh, when your daddy makes your mom mad, don't let her brush her hair. <laughs> now, if a six-year-old understands, you and I understand, there are things that we're not capable of doing well when we're angry. You need to be humble enough to realize, okay, now's not the time for me to have that discussion with this person. Now's not the time for me to make a big life-changing decision because I am not myself. See, the conclusion of this story is great. David goes back into the wilderness with his food. He and his men enjoy it. Life goes on. Meanwhile, Abigail returns home. I want you to think about Abigail for just a moment. Again, this is what I love about this woman. Here's a beautiful, intelligent God-honoring, wise woman who is yoked to a miserable, worthless slug of a man. Why is everybody looking at Carrie Berger right now, right? You know, <laughs> I'm offended. But she could have, when she hears that David and his army are on their way, she could have said, oh, darn, how unfortunate. You know what, servants, let's place some drop cloths around the house so we don't get blood on the carpet right? Let's cover up the, the valuables. No. She could, have, she could have said, he's going to die. Good. I'm free. No, she does what's right. She goes out to rescue her husband 
and to intervene in the life of a, of a man of God. And how is she rewarded? Well, let me tell you. Because when she goes home and says to Nabal, and by the way, when she gets home, Nabal's throwing a big feast because it's sheep shearing time. And he's sitting there like a king, eating and drinking. She waits until he's done. She tells him the story. And when he hears what almost happened, the way the scriptures describe it, his heart became like a stone inside of him. And he lingered in a coma for about 10 days and then died. When David heard, David sent messengers who said, David would like to be your husband. How about it? Now, is that a boss move or what? <laughs> and Abigail goes from misery to the wife of the future king. Don't you love when a story ends happily? But it ended that way because she acted, because she stood up for righteousness, because she intervened in the life of someone who was about to make a tragic mistake. Now, you might say, you know, that's great, but when I'm charging ahead and I'm about to do or say something I shouldn't, I don't have time for a, a still small voice. I don't have time for someone to come intervene. I don't, I don't have any of that stuff. Psychologists will tell us that anger is a learned response to frustration. Do you hear what I say? A learned response. In other words, you develop habits of how you respond to certain stimuli. When my, our kids were little, we, we tried to train them in this. I, I remember when Will was little, especially, uh, we would tell him over and over again when he'd get frustrated and throw a fit as, as, a, as a little guy. And we'd say, Will, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be a jerk. I don't know how many times we said that to him. But he's learned that. I mean, I, I'm proud of my son. 15 years old, a lot of us are idiots at that age. And I think he's way ahead of where I was at that age. We can learn new ways to handle the emotions inside of us, but not by trying hard, by learning to hear God's voice, like I said, getting into his word, by confessing our sins to others, not just to God, but to the people we've hurt, the things we've said, the times we've wounded them, being honest about that, that review of the consequences changes us, by praying for patience, gentleness, and a humble spirit. Those three things are in the letter I wrote in the bulletin this week. In case you don't want to write them down, they're already there. A humble, teachable spirit. Patience and gentleness. I don't know how many of you pray for that every day, but I know how many of you need to pray for that every day. And that's every single one of you. None of us have enough of that. And find a way to spend time around people you know who are patient. Hopefully there's at least somebody in your life that you see who handles frustrations better than you do. Do whatever you have to do to be around them so what they have will rub off on you. If you have to take them out to lunch and pick up the tab every time, it's worth it. So when I got married, I had a certain way of responding to anger. And I didn't think I had a problem. But when I got married, I realized I did. See, I'd grown up... In, in my home, it was my brother and me. I had no sisters. I was rarely around women other than my mom, who was very long-suffering. I, I, I grew up, I played sports, so I was around jock culture a lot. I had a way of responding when I got angry, and it was to yell, to scream, to throw things. I didn't 
I never hurt anybody, or at least rarely. I, I wasn't particularly violent. It's just I was of that school of thought that that's the way a man expresses anger. When I met my wife, I realized that wouldn't work, or I, once we got married, that is. She'd grown up in a home where she was one of four sisters, and her dad was sufficiently tamed by the time she came along, and uh, she was very kind and gentle and sweet-natured, and she just could not abide living with someone who expressed anger the way I did. And so I, after a while, I realized I need to make some changes, and I worked hard, and I grew very proud of myself because I thought, I'm someone who knows how to control his anger. I'm very patient. And then we started having children. Suddenly, there were these little humans in my house that had no control over their feelings and no empathy for my feelings. And I can remember the very precise moment when I realized I had a problem. It was when my daughter was three. Any parents in here go, oh yeah, three. I remember that. Uh Uh-huh. So the, the church I was pastoring at the time, we had a monthly business meeting. That's mistake number one. Don't have business meeting once a month. That's way too often. But um, so, so the church had this thing where um, they wanted more people to come to business meetings because there were only about 25 people that would come. So they said, let's have a potluck dinner uh, before the business meeting, and that will attract people, you know, free food. It didn't. We still had the same 25 people over and over again. You, know, you could have served steak and lobster, they wouldn't have come. But we kept doing it anyway, because church is like the government. Once you start a program, you can't cancel it. Am I getting angry? I'm sorry. Um, so they had this other tradition that said, when, when, you, when you ate at the church, you couldn't eat a single bite until the preacher and no one else had prayed over it. Now, on that particular night, we were running late, even though we lived literally 10 steps from the church building. And so um, we got there, and I'm already a little on edge, and we get there, and, and everybody's kind of good-natured about it. They're just kind of teasing, hey, you know, I guess you had to come a long way. I guess I understand why you're late. And, and so I, I get ready to pray, and, and it was one of those three-year-old moments, you know. Kaylee was just not herself right then, and, and, and I heard my wife say to her, now, Kaylee, be quiet. Daddy's got to pray. And she said, well, I don't want to pray. And just without even thinking, I whipped around and said, well, go home, except not that nice. And there was dead silence. I mean, a few minutes before, everybody's laughing, joking, talking. Suddenly, you heard crickets chirping. <laughs> Somewhere off in the distance, a dog barked. And, and, and no one's making eye, eye contact at all because they just cannot believe that this guy, this preacher, just banished his adorable brown-eyed cherub from the church. And, and I thought to myself, who, who, who am I? What kind of father am I going to be? Am I going to be one of these fathers that their kids are always afraid, walking on eggshells, don't want to get daddy mad? Am I going to raise kids who grew up thinking this is how you deal with the world when it doesn't go your way? And I really, really, really realized, I can't say I don't have a problem with anger. That volcano is in there. It's part of me. It's that sin nature. It won't die completely until Christ redeems me totally. And until then, I've got to fight every day. I've got to do what it takes to calm that down. And I can't say I've won, but I can say By God's grace, I'm so much more patient, so much more exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, than I used to. 
I hope my wife and kids would say that too. But the reason why is not because I try hard. It's because there's, there's a God who became a man. A man who did something that none of, else, none of the rest of us can really even imagine. He took beatings, insults, whip across his back, nails in his hands and feet, and responded by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he can make us those kinds of people. He can calm the volcano inside of you. And I guarantee you, if you'll let him, there's a whole lot of people in your orbit who would thank God for it. Will you let him do that? If, if even one person in this room makes the decision I made that night before the business meeting, the heavens will rejoice. Is that person you?